with the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Today is episode 12 of Y Web 3, where we dive deep into the world of ever evolving change of frontier and emerging technologies. On the agenda today, we've got a lineup of top headlines shaping the digital landscape. From the potentials of the crypto winter, legal battles in the world of cryptocurrencies, and major players making strategic moves. We've got a lot to unpack. But let's first discuss how influential crypto has become even more a world in the luxury brands. Uh, Plus, stay tuned for insights on the industry leaders as they share their thoughts on the future of Bitcoin. And that's just the beginning, because we're also really going to delve into some regulatory concerns, NFT creator royalties, and just really a lot of innovations around crypto and and blockchain overall. Uh, Today is October 19th. Uh, Bitcoin is at 28,854, so fabulous to see it uprising. Uh, The Fed is still standing uh, high at 5.25 to 5.5%, and the NASDAQ is up at 13,396 from last week. Uh, I've got some incredible guests today. Let's go ahead and get an intro from uh, the fabulous Miss Lucia. Um, Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm super excited to be here. I'm calling in from Honduras, uh, which as you know, is where I'm from. Um, I'm the CEO of Emerge. I'm the co-founder of The Eternals. Uh, Emerge is an experimentation lab that focuses on uh, edge tech innovation centered around impact, environment, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, And then in my spare time, I work on advisory for central banks and governments and policymakers that are looking to roll out initiatives uh, and projects that leverage the technology for uh, meeting some of those targets as well. Um, yeah, that's me. It's super happy to be here and very passionate about rainforest conservation and education and uh, technology and impact, as you all well know now. Fabulous. Great, great to see you again. Thank you for coming back. And Siva. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And nice to meet you, Lucia. My name is Siva Avaru. I'm the Managing Director of YWell Solutions. We're a boutique management consultancy um, focused on letting our clients figure out how to harness emerging technologies to weave into their existing business models without disrupting the inherent core or nature of their businesses. If you speak with a lot of emerging tech consultancies, they're most likely going to tell you that you need to disrupt your business and you need to do X, Y, and Z. Where we come in is we actually do a very strategic assessment of how their business currently operates today, how their industry operates today, and where things like blockchain actually do make sense. Because as we know, everyone says we should tokenize everything and put everything on the blockchain, but not everything should go on the blockchain and not everything should be tokenized. And so what we do is we cut through a lot of the noise for our clients and actually make sense, help them figure out where it actually makes sense for their business. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, we've got a lot on the agenda today, so let's kind of dive right into it. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that, that we saw this week was this this fake news, um, you know, kind of a little errant tweet that came out from Cointelegraph that goes, hey, uh, a Bitcoin ETF has, has been uh, approved. And for eight whole minutes, uh, people, you know, retweeted and believed this was true. And we saw, you know, uh, Bitcoin skyrocket. I think at it, it, it one point, uh, a few of the exchanges were showing 33. So this is up from 26. It, it flew up way back, uh, and then immediately, like I said, they recalled it and they go, "Nope, sorry, it, mistake. We, you know, we heard it from a third party source. It wasn't validated, verified. Uh, everyone said no, um, and it came crashing right back down to twenty six. So I think where this is really interesting is a, is a few points. And I love your perspectives from both of the two of you. Is number one, it showcases massive interest in in kind of integration into traditional finance. Uh, that that you know, really the the ideas of self custody, the ideas of you know native. Bitcoin trading and cryptocurrency markets um, is not as exciting as people think. The institutions, the big investors, uh, are really all waiting for for regulated, uh, you know, custodians to hold e- hold these things through an ETF. Um, and and the promise that we've seen over the last few years of you know hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin, you know one hundred fifty thousand dollar Bitcoin, um, probably means that we have to move outside of the traditional cryptocurrency market players. So the the other thing I think that's really interesting and scary 
is you know who these players are uh, that are moving them through because I think that a lot of the libertarians among, among cryptocurrencies uh, and kind of got into the theses was the anti-banking crowd. And let's be clear: who's the bringing these ETFs to to the market? It's the bank. It's Wall Street. So you know, Lucia, I'm, I'm sure this has been blowing up on all of your channels lately. What what are your kind of thoughts over what we saw? And and I think it's it's really positive in one sense. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's safe to say that you know, Bitcoin's price hasn't worked in these like rumors that keep popping up and down. And to be fair, on that tweet, there was a spot Bitcoin ETF approved in Europe. <laughs> um, so the Jacobi Bitcoin ETF, you know, has been approved for almost like a year. I think they delayed uh, launching it because of you know digital asset markets in general at the time. But ultimately. The tweet's not entirely wrong if you take geography and, and exactly what the tweet meant <laughs> out of context. Um, I think, you know, it, it is ironic that the go-to-market strategy for a lot of these, you know, Bitcoin products is through the traditional finance market. Obviously, um, you know, you're talking about a technology that was inherently intended to offset a lot of the barriers that the finance market gave to it. And then now we find ourselves sort of being in a place where we see price action move heavily in response to some of these rumors. And I think, you know, many players influencing this from an institutional side, but also it goes to show of a lot of the shortcomings of the way that traditional investors, non-accredited investors can actually access some of these financial instruments and products and services. And so how much of a good job are we doing in creating mechanisms by which people can enter this without the support or uh, custodianship of traditional financial institutions? And I think this is really, at least what I've tried to take from it is, you know, we're clearly not doing a great job if the reliance and the, you know, like uptick in price on Bitcoin is dependent on news that relates to the traditional finance sector taking over custodianship for so many investors. And so really, really interesting on that point. And then naturally, you sort of see that there's been a lot of delays. But of course, these conversations that the SEC is having that sort of hint at approval uh, might also be an observation into how the market moves in response to it. Like we just you know, if they continuously keep putting out these headlines, continuously keep exploring how the market reacts to it, maybe we're feeding into exactly what they want to study. I don't know. Like, it might also be that. Yeah. And the question I'd like to pose over to you, Siva, is, and this is something that we deal with all the time, and I think it comes down to the concept of, you know, do you want a legal custodian or do you want, you know, self-custody? And, you know, I, I, I very much believe that self-custody should be right. It's something in you know a traditional finance. You can walk into a bank and walk out with cash or whatever you want to do. Um, but but really, there hasn't been any you know major institutional holders of cryptocurrency to date. You know, there's a whole bunch here. But let's also be clear: what happens when you you know not your keys, not your crypto is is a real term because it happens all the time. The difference here is when you have a regulated MTF, you you have the transparency, you have the insurance. You these are these are like big mm-hmm. SEC you know tons of rules and regulations around there which is everything that we as you know cryptocurrency you know fanatics don't want for ourselves but let's be clear we want it for these guys to make sure that that as we invest in a in a spot especially a spot bitcoin um, that what we have is there so it, how do you feel this is you know siva like is is the market really kind of stating we don't want to we don't really want to hold the keys to this like we you know especially institutions so i think we're in an interesting point in the market um, if you think of like when peak liquidity for the crypto markets was at the peak liquidity of the overall crypto market cap is still smaller than some of the smallest commodities markets that are traded on regulated execution venues, right? And so we've hit this inflection point where it almost seems like retail liquidity or non-regulated liquidity has taken the market to its peak. You know, I would say, I was venture to say 2021, 2022 was that peak of when we saw retail being able to move these markets. But what we just, what we just witnessed in the snafu a couple of days ago is when institutional participation enters the market, it moves mountains, right? And a big reason why is, and I think this is a a, a concept that is often overlooked uh, over by a lot of decentralist maxists, you know, in our space is that TradFi and DeFi cannot play well together right now with with an inherent core issue, right? DeFi without the uh, non-attestation of the counterparty on the other side of a trade, TradFi cannot legally interact in a DeFi central, decentralized manner and taking advantage of crypto-backed products, right? It's, it's a big reason why we don't have crypto derivatives as a product yet in, in the market, right? Um, and so 
When you think of like what's going to bring institutional liquidity, it's regulated entities. Individuals, you know, KYC can't really move markets, even if you're a whale, right? Unless if you have an, a regulated entity that's KYB'd and can now trade on regulated execution venues, right? And that's a big point because if you can get a secure, if you can get something like an ETF, if you're securitizing a product, there holds a whole treasure trove of capabilities that are built into the securitization of a product that is all built for investor safety. If you go and do spot trading in Bitcoin right now, there's no certifier or backers of that Bitcoin, right? And so what you have is you have this issue of a lot of people losing, you know, and 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 if something happens, their investment is sunk, right? And and what's interesting with the ETF participation is it, it's kind of the first instance that we're seeing where hey, traditional market participants are certifying a product, but now this is a product that might actually have some backing and certification, you know, should something happen to this product. And I think that's very interesting because I think what that does actually open up the doors for is much more innovative crypto-backed products in the capital markets space. And that's something yeah. that's really driven by the capital markets participants because they're regulated entities, regulated execution venues, you need to acquire the regulate, regulatory licenses yeah, yeah. to be able to play in this space. That's not something DeFi can do today. And it's kind of now yeah. we're at this inflection point where to move these markets forward, you kind of need to figure out a way on how to bring TradFi into the picture in a way that kind of uplifts both both, both markets. Yeah. Lucy, I, I see mean, you snarling. Let's go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's really interesting because you're you're saying, okay, ETFs are generally considered less risky for investors and you sort of have this opportunity to be more protected. But if you look at the actual market response to these kinds of announcements, it actually fuels the speculative aspect of the market itself. And so it's just, to me, incredibly ironic that, you know, this is like a circle of no beginning. So we say, you know, Bitcoin ETFs are on the verge of approval and then the market speculative, you know, side comes out and price moves. And then the SEC delays the proposals and says, hey, we're concerned about market manipulation. And we're concerned about all of these other, you know, factors in relation to surveillance sharing agreements and so on. But I just find it really you know, interesting that we're kind of stuck in this moment where we say, yes, you're right. Tra like traditional finance and DeFi right now are not super compatible. And part of that is that they're like innately incompatible. And so we're going to continue to kind of run into these like hurdles of saying, okay, well, you know, part of this is because it's a highly volatile, highly speculative, risky market and bringing these traditional, you know, aspects into it will add less, you know, add protections or make it less risky. And yet that in and of itself unleashes a risk response from the market. And so we're, I'm kind of seeing this as like a, we're going to keep seeing these cycles, these new cycles repeat themselves for, you know, the foreseeable future. Um, but I am very keen to see how the Jacobi uh, ETF performs in Amsterdam and sort of, you know, see what example that sets for the SEC to sort of, you know, get their ducks in a row and say, okay, we, we might let one of these proposals go through at some point. Yeah, you know, the, po the point I want to bring in, and we can jump to one of the next articles because I think it integrates in here, is, you know, Morgan Stanley, who, uh, you know, one of the largest traditional asset holders on the planet, um, is saying, hey, it's it's the end of the bear market. Um, that's news to me because I, I still feel like we're in a winter. So if, if we've got the TradFi people suddenly becoming bullish on cryptocurrencies, I think that's a, that's a huge win. Um, where, where I kind of want to throw this on here is, is it really showcases that, um, you know, let's be clear, we went from a couple hundred million dollars to a couple hundred billion dollars in the cryptocurrency market. Uh, we, we capped out right around $3 trillion um, and came, came kind of crashing back down. Even at $3 trillion, it's a, that's a fractional, it's a teeny, teeny, tiny, little bitty market. Um, and so, you know, we, we want to say that, that, you know, blockchain, and I started to use this term blockchain finance, blockchain based finance, um, is really the future of the world's economy. And so the concept of cryptocurrencies is just one of these little things here. And, you know, so we're seeing the rise of real world assets. We know this is coming. We see, you know, a lot of people working on it. Lucia, you're working on it. Siva, you and I are working on it. Um, and so I, I think that it's really, interesting to see some of these people that are now coming in back and saying, hey, uh, these tokens, you know, that, that are that are backed by nothing, like we, we see them becoming more valuable um, at the same time that we're seeing the technology mature enough to the point where we can put like real assets, like real value, real title um, is able to be starting to put on chain through 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 regulations like MICA. Um, the United States is deciding not to participate at this point, uh, Lucia, but, you know, I'd love your kind of thoughts on, on hearing, you know, bullish news from the TradFi guys. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm also living in your market. I'm not living in their market yet. <laughs> At least that's what my wallet tells me. <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, to be, to be honest, like that article was interesting to me because it was really looking at historical data. Um, it's, I don't know how much of it is like a prediction on what's about to happen. Um, and this notion of like a spring, you know, led by things like Micah kicking in, led by, you know, outside of the US, it's sort of gaining real traction in a lot of different countries, huge conversations on the use of stable coins and, you know, the requirements to use stable coins in certain use cases. So, and then also, you know, we're looking at a halving in April, that's obviously going to stir up a lot of interest, a lot of demand, a lot of movement on price, and which will obviously elevate the rest of the market. But so I think like there's a couple of things that sure, historically speaking, have done very well in helping us recover. I think the gist of that article is really that it's like looking based on historical data, there's, you know, been a turn in the market when we're 50% increased from our lowest point in the market and we're there, right? And on top of that, we've got the halving and on top of that, we've got this regulation kicking in. And so these sort of are a perfect storm of events in order to get us into recovery mode. How much of that will also be impacted by other events? I think, you know, we are on the verge of a couple of world wars and uh, we're also, you know, looking at some incredible scrutiny from the United States. They don't want to participate in a lot of this. And naturally, that's going to have a huge impact in our ability to recover because the truth is there are a lot of investors in the U.S., based in the U.S. Um, and the U.S. dollar and on-ramps and off-ramp are, you know, something that's pretty pretty critical to the space so far. Uh, obviously, with Coinbase setting up operations in Ireland and then being able to deploy and once they're able to tap, like fully tap in to the investor base in Europe, we'll see what what happens there and how much you know investors are able to generate some traction and sort of help push along recovery. But I think overall, you know, I'm optimistic because obviously I'm very biased, um, and there are a lot of things that are creating these perfect conditions for recovery. I just think it's to me at least not enough to really say with certainty that that's where we're going to be in a couple of months. Yeah, I, I think the Morgan Stanley thing is just a giant PR push. I mean, if you dig underneath the hood and you look at Morgan Stanley's uh, history with Bitcoin, you would look and see in 2021, they tried to do a, a filing with a Bitcoin ETF with NYDG. And then if you look at the timing of this announcement, you know, a couple of days ago, I think last week, Morgan Stanley announced that they are planning to launch one of the first mutual fund to ETF conversions for Bitcoin. So the timing is very suspect, right? You know, you come out and you're a substantial market mover in the in the capital market space and you've got products, you've got an inherent interest that you want to push your own products. And one of the ways to signal that is to say, hey, Morgan Stanley, where this is the end of the bear market. Oh, by the way, we're launching these Bitcoin products. It's no longer a bear market. Let's invest in these things, right? It's, 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 I it's mean, a market. In Fairness, though, Siva, they've all sort of done that at certain points in time. Like you've had the CEO of major financial institutions be, you know, very bearish and then suddenly be ultra bullish once they're building something. So, you know, I think I, right. I think you're right about that. Also, I, they're, they're not wrong about certain things that are happening in the market that could lead to it's one of those things. It's almost like reading a horoscope where it's like just enough general information to be able to give you a conclusion that is possible not you know necessarily a certainty, but it's close enough and rel like relatable enough that you feel like they might be onto something. But it's just one of those things where enough is true, but it doesn't lead to a certain outcome at all. Yeah, and let's also take take in mind and remember a little bit of of how these players really work. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are not regulated assets as of this time, especially in the United States. So the SEC has no purview. So this is the best time for them to say whatever the hell they want to push the market up, down, left, right, whatever they want to do, because there is no you know they can say whatever they want. You know he can you know Jim Cramer can go on there and say ah screw it, dump you know the thing's a horrible horrible mess, um, and then you know ninety seconds later the thing's shooting up you know twenty twenty thirty percent. Um, you know, so, but that's a very different story if you have an analyst saying, hey, here's my thoughts on this. Um, when you have, you know, Larry Fink, the, the CEO of, of uh, BlackRock stating it, like, he can't do that with a security. You know, you can't say like, you know, Amazon's going to go to the moon. Um, and it's, it's the, you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations around that. So I think that you're, they're kind of taking their, their, their slams at it where they can right now. Um, and, but 
there is somebody who who definitely is is hurting the industry and hurting the market. Um, you know, we're we're seeing you know. Andre already knows which article we're going for. Um, so what, one of the things is, is, is we're seeing, and you just you actually just said it a few minutes ago, you know, Lucia. So we're, we're talking about um, you know all this innovation, you know, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, everything like around the world. It is it is a phenomenon. Like I travel the world, same as you, and everywhere everywhere I go, um, you know, blockchain is a unifier. Um, cryptocurrencies are a unifier. Like there's clearly like so much momentum here. It's unlike anything we've seen since Web One. However, the lar- the country that really invented the web um, is just choosing not to participate and pushing you know a lot of these major innovations. So like you just said, you know, Coinbase is moving to Ireland to. to take Take advantage of Mica, um, you know, Siva. We're we're launching a project and we're we're moving um, over to the EU for it um, because we have people like Elizabeth Warren uh, here is now who is leading the charge to again continually try to shut down cryptocurrencies, um, stating that they're funding of terrorism. Um, let, let's be clear. We I've I've read these articles. I've I've looked because I okay. Please let, let's take a look at this. Um, this is this is you know like a point zero 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 one percent chance that 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 cryptocurrencies are being used to fund actual terrorism compared to fiat dollars, cash, um, and and let's just say a lot of nation states that are actually doing the funding of, of you know, some really horrible things around the world. So pointing your finger at, at a bunch of meme coins and, and uh, you know, nascent technology that needs to grow, I, I think is highly responsible of a U.S. senator to continue to do. I think I said that as strong as I could. Lucia? Yeah, I mean, I... Like, this is one of those things where it hurts me that it's even getting, like, as much attention as it's getting because, like, the number one currency in the world that is used to fund terrorism, the number one currency in the world that is used to launder money, the number one currency in the world that is used in illicit markets is the American dollar. And it's done via cash. And it's done through banks sometimes, and it's done through business sometimes, and it's done through governments sometimes. And so the idea that like a percentage of funds, and I think it's something like, was it 130 million that they said or something like that? They had ballparked. I, yeah, I think it, about, it 130, 100, about 130 million over, over a, a two or three year period. Okay, we're talking about like billions of dollars that are moving in this kind of conflict, both like in Russia, Ukraine, in Israel, Palestine. Like, this is absolutely a billion, you know, multi billion dollar situation. And they're making a big, giant splash about 130 million that they're not even sure about because, you know, they're complaining about the lack of traceability, which means they haven't even done proper due diligence on, you know, transaction flow, which you can do um, through a lot of these cryptos. And so it's just interesting to me that, you know, we are giving so much time and attention that they are like hopping on this like anti-crypto agenda, you know, possibly to detract from what's actually going on. You know, American dollars are currently, as you know, we, we talked about prior to, the, to starting the recording, like they're funding both sides of this and they're doing it through American dollars and they're doing it in billions of dollars, not in $130 million. And so it is yeah. highly irresponsible for people to like fall into this trap of thinking that crypto has this huge footprint in global black markets and in global terrorism and in global money laundering when this is happening with you know in, within institutions and within structured monetary systems that are regulated and it's you know a dr- like literally a drop in the water in proportion to what's being funded and it's funding both sides of the situation and so i just am very frustrated by this headline, this article, this like line of coverage. Um, there are like many reasons why uh, this is ironic and hip- hypocritical to go down this path. And I don't know how more, much more strongly I can say it, but to, to be frank, it's quite grotesque to think that that's the lens that they're going to be focusing on when realistically speaking right now, uh, both sides of the, of the conflict are being completely funded and most of that funding in the billions of dollars is coming in fiat. Yeah. And, and, you know, to kind of go on to this, there, there's a lot of like horrible things happening in the world right now. And I, I look at, and, and this, that same $130 million is the same thing she's been pointing out for three years. And yeah. it's, 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 it's actually a much smaller amount than that. She's using, you know, peak of the bull market, what some of these cryptocurrencies are worth. Um, they're, they're not worth anywhere near that now. And in fact, they moved years ago. But, but I, I think, you know, Siva, I, I want to pivot over to you on the technology side of this. Um, 
cryptocurrencies are like one of the worst ways to try to launder money. Like this is like, you know, we, we have people that come to us in YWS community, you know, almost every month and they have funds stolen or something happens. And it's like, give us five minutes, we can trace it for you. Like it's not hard to do. It's, it's the easiest thing to know where it goes. And, and, and then you have the control of the on and off ramps because they've really, you know, kind of limited these things so much. Yeah, unless if it's like something like Monero, right? Um, uh, yeah, and, and exactly. it's funny because you know this reminds me of, and I don't, I don't know how many people remember this or are aware of this from like ten years ago. If you guys remember the Silk Road, and the Silk yeah. Road, you know, mm-hmm. overwhelming, overwhelmingly at its peak, accepted Bitcoin as a primary form of payment on its marketplace, and so a big reason around the you know uh, around all the negative fanfare around the Silk, minus you know what they were actually selling. You know, stuff was that there was a, a a budding narrative that hey bitcoin is responsible people were doing kind of a socratic a socratic uh logistics uh mind exercise if you buy illegal stuff or doing bad things on the silk road and you're able to pay for those via bitcoin then bitcoin is responsible for all of the bad things that are happening on the internet right and that was a big narrative around what led to sort of the demise of the silk road right and so i i feel like this has got very uh, eerie, like similar parallels um, uh, in the way that Elizabeth Warren is framing her whole anti-crypto army agenda, right? Without necessarily inherently understanding the the core concept of what Bitcoin is or what cryptocurrencies are from a technology perspective. And she really, she's just tackling kind of symptoms versus like a, uh, having an understanding of the root nature of the, of the, of the, of the coin or, or the construct, right? It's, Hey, people are using this for bad things. Let's, let's cut it off. Right. But people are going to go and find uh, bad ways to do fun, bad things in, in another way, right? You turn off cryptocurrencies. What are they going to go to? They're going to revert back to the I, I, can, I can give her a list of a dozen things around cryptocurrencies that she should write letters on and she should find ways to fix. Like this is okay. just, it's not even in the top 50. Go for it. I was just going to say, can we just point out, though, the irony of the fact that, you know, when the Russia conflict uh, came out, there was her statements around, you know, Russia could be using crypto to fundraise for blah, blah, blah. And there was no statement made on Ukraine's use of crypto. And so when you look at the situation now, she again is focusing the lens on Okay, well, Hamas and terrorist groups and jihad, you know, are using crypto. And so if you look at it, she's actually not complaining about the use of crypto. She's complaining about the use of crypto from specific people. And Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting thing to me because that sort of informs the way that they're going to think about policy. It's okay to do it as long as you're on our side when you do it. Just make sure you're not against us when you do it. And so then it'll be, you know, a rallying cry. And, you know, obviously you can feel whatever which way about all of the conflicts that are going on in the world. But I think the biggest hypocrisy here is that she purposefully is using her anti-crypto agenda at very strategic moments to call out very strategic people that are feeding into this, like, you know, agenda that, that is a longer, more complicated game than, you know, people that are only paying attention to a crypto market or crypto announcements are sort of looking at. So the wider lens is really like, this is actually an agenda that's not just feeding to the financial markets, but it's actually saying this is a political statement about who can and who cannot use these technological tools. I I really love that perspective. I I think that's a really good perspective that a lot of people aren't really thinking about, right? It's, 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 it's almost funny, right? It's because right now they're, they're tackling crypto because crypto is a, um, a method of facilitating commerce that the U.S. government has no control over. They have no insights into, right? Versus whatever is on chain or whatever they, you know, do some analysis and what have you, right? But they, they don't have the ability to control it. Whereas, mm-hmm. hey, they're fine with drug dealers and all this other illicit activity happening with the U.S. dollar because there's some return back to the U.S. Yeah. economy, right? There is an inherent yeah. advantage for them using the U.S. US dollar. But with a crypto, there is no, at least at the, in the immediate in, return, there is no immediate return back into the U.S. economy, right? And so it's like, hey, how do we get this narrative to a point where we get the public or at least a substantial enough of the population to rally behind us where we then can say, yes, we are a fan of cryptocurrencies, but we like them if they're used in this manner, right? And if Mm -hmm. it's our narrative. And I think that's the bigger, I think think that's what you're trying to hit on here, Lucia, which I think is bigger issue that people need to be aware of, of this whole narrative that, that Warren and co are, are kind of chasing after. 
and, and yes. I think one of the things let's let's also be clear is, and I, I'll put it in this perspective, and let's kind of shift over to the other side of this. Like, how can crypto do good? You know, because because you know, mm-hmm. forever for you know, for all evil, what's what's the other side of this? And and if and if it's true that it can be done, you know, think bad things can happen with it. Then what's the good that can come out of it? And I'll, I'll say that I think this is the exact same example, and why I take I take her response is just absolute garbage. So uh, a couple of years ago, when there was the the kind of hurried withdrawal from the United States out of Afghanistan, um, we were reached out to by a number of humanitarian groups and NGOs that said, hey, we have this serious problem that women are not, no longer allowed to work. They're no longer allowed to leave the house. They can't earn money for their families. They, they can't, um, they're, they're, there's these challenges. You know, How can we help train them and, and pay them so they can buy bread? And, and we went through this exercise as a community where was, you know, probably a hundred of us that worked on it. And the reality is we can, we can, you know, the, you have a, 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 any type of phone, any type of internet access, we can train you to do a job. We can, we can reward and pay you to do that job. The challenge you have is the on and off ramps is we can, we can give as much crypto to these people as we wanted. They couldn't buy bread with it. There, there was no access to, to to the bridge that traditional finance system, and and so that's the, that's kind of that rub right there is that you know OFAC is OFAC, you know KYC KYB is is around the world for a reason, and so I, I think attacking the method of you know what people how people move it whether it's stocks bonds treasury T bills you know or cryptocurrency it's irrelevant you know if whoever purchased that if it was purchased legally then then we know where it is it's a matter of controlling who the on and off ramps are and right now there's no off ramps. There really isn't anywhere in the world. And we're even seeing, you know, my next article is Binance is just leaving the United States. They pause withdrawals. Um, and, and whether you like or hate Binance, I mean, it's just, it continues to hit the industry in the United States, which pushes us further, further and further behind in the rest of the world. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate with like kind of the current state of regulatory uh, perspectives in the U.S. on this industry is quickly, you know, I view personally Web3 blockchain crypto as this next frontier of technology that's going to be able to catapult the the digital commerce to a whole new level. And the U.S. had a very great uh, footprint into being a hub of innovation for this. But the past year and a half has, especially from like Gensler and Warren and a lot of other U.S. regulators and politicians, we're starting to shift. Sorry, see a significant shift where all of the thought leadership in this space is starting to migrate over to mainly the EU and the Asian markets. Because hey, ESMA and the EU was like, hey, we will provide regulatory guidance on how all twenty-seven member nation states should treat digital assets as regulated securities. Now they've got a regulatory framework that now traditional market participants and other people that want to play in these spaces have some sort of guidance to do so. We've got here in the SEC and in the U.S., we've got Gary Gensler acting via, you know, fines and retribution and trying to enact legislation and policy via, via, you know, slaps on the wrists. That's not showing any sort of collaboration. That's not promoting the benefits of this. If you eventually want to create some sort of USD, like stable coin or some sort of, you know, federal uh, federal standard for, for how payments are done here, right? It's 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 why 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 would we why would the top innovators in the space want to continue to work into work within a uh, a hostile uh, environment where they're, they're, the claws are always out against them? Or you can go yeah. to the EU where you're starting to see some MTFs that are starting to look at, you know, digital backed assets. You have Singapore and the Hong Kong and they're starting to do treasury bills and they're starting to do green notes and bonds and all this stuff. It's like trying to be on the top of uh, innovation. And then a huge metric here, you know, we have a very, very skewed lens from a Western perspective, especially being in the U.S. where everyone here is virtually banked. But a lot of the world, and McKinsey put out a report a couple of months ago, 80% of the world's population is still unbanked, right? And that's very yep. powerful. When you think about what the good of crypto can provide, when you think of the traditional financial markets, there's a lot of intermediaries that resolve, that that kind of provide a, a certain construct for the underbanked or the underserved for them not to be able to participate in these markets in the way that we have the luxury to do so. So really the biggest benefits is to the markets and to the emerging markets that are have to deal with corruption, that have to deal with uh, certain entities or their governments that they have no confidence and trust. 
And that's where a decentralized or an alternative currency like this really provides some value. And I think that that disintermediation is a huge proponent where traditional financial market participants are like, hey, you want to get rid of brokers? You want to get rid of banks? Well, of course, we're going to do everything to go against that, right? Why yeah. would we want you to hold these in neobanks or something of that nature? Yeah. That said, I would I would argue that that you know obviously not saying that it is a panacea, right? Because there are plenty of DeFi projects that have you know put a lot of liquidity from investors that had limited liquidity to start with at risk, and so I think you know there are I would categorize like there's a couple of like short term good that that this this technology can do. There's long term good that this technology can do. I think what you're saying absolutely fits into this long term game of saying you know can we get this right and disintermediate and use it for greater traceability. And I think that's where a lot of the interest in stable coins is coming from. Is this idea that like well inherently it's less speculative, so that means it will protect investors a little better because it's pegged to something that we trust. And so you know we would be willing to explore let's say voucher programs as uh, one of my clients, uh, government clients, is looking at um, or subsidies or uh, you know digital currencies that sort of uh, can be used locally in a way that feels like we can trust it more than um, something that we don't, we just don't understand the volatility around. But at the same time, I think there's some like really short term uh, examples of how this can be really helpful. And I think it fundamentally, when you understand the uses of money, very often it comes from a financial perspective and you say money is useful because it's a means of exchange. It's a means of investment. It's a means of peer-to-peer trade. It's a means of settling payment. It's a means of borrowing and building credit, but it's also very importantly, uh, a means to power and, you know, these power dynamics and it's a means for control as well. And so when you look at some of the ways in which conflict manifests, you see, for example, when a country is sort of shutting down and trying to prevent people from leaving the country, uh, as we've seen in Venezuela before, for example, one of the first policies that they enact is a limitation on how much money you can convert into American dollars, how much money you can pull out of the country, how much money you can sort of, uh, take out from the bank in one shot. And so they start controlling all of the ways in which people can access money. And they're afraid of the response that that might lead to in relation to, uh, you know, the situation on the ground. And then you see right now, for example, you've got a blockade on, on aid coming in. And how do you get effective aid into the region? How do you support on the ground operations? How do you get money to people in a really fast you know, way? How does that happen in a natural disaster context when you know something happens, there's an earthquake, there's a storm? How quickly can you get resources to people? How quickly can you get people funded and reimbursed and uh, supported in some way for the you know work that they're doing uh, in rescue uh, missions or things like that? And so when you look at the short-term transferability of money that is sovereign and therefore lacks the ability to like so wholeheartedly control it, then it becomes incredibly useful to do good because it's a means to making sure that people can be deployed and compensated and protected financially from environments where very often money is controlled or the access to money is controlled. And I think that that's a really powerful statement to make on behalf of a technology that is proposing sovereign sovereign money. And at the same time, a great irony and going back to our first article, which is, you know, that the fact that, you know, we're relying on the incoming of institutional finance and the incoming of this guidance and these rules around access to money and control of money and protection of money and so on and so forth um, really sort of clashes a little with this philosophy of what is the immediate good that this money can do in situations that we're sort of seeing around the world today. That's a, that's a really an amazing response there. I, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so let's let's shift gears just a little bit. And, you know, we've been talking about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin quite a bit. So so now let's shift over to a little bit more of the DGENY stuff, um, which is identities on chain. Um, and uh, a, a little tiny, tiny country called uh, Palau. I, I've always wanted to go diving there. It's, it's you know, the size of a speck in the ocean. Um, wants to become, you know, a crypto island. Uh, and they're starting with issuing digital IDs uh, as forms of NFTs. And you know, clearly, they did all their homework. Uh, they looked at this and they said, "Okay, we can we can issue a, a, a thing. It puts on the blockchain, and we certify it and validate it. And here you go." Um, and just like every other crypto project with people that really don't understand the space, the first thing that happened is it got hacked. <laughs> so, you know, it it, it is. I think I agree with the concept. I, I I think I applaud them for saying, "Hey, we want to have these these digital passports. They're validated. Valid. They're able to be validated on chain." Um, but but you know, 
blockchain itself is not just perfectly secure. Um, you know, you have to secure the smart contracts. You have, and, and smart contracts are not designed for multi-users. Uh, a Genosis wallet is not a multi-user thing. That's just, multi, you know, sort of the case is. So we're, we're really seeing a lot, a lot of the, um, you know, just, just the fact that blockchain is starting to mature. Nation states, again, are trying to utilize it. Um, you know, and, and Siva, we, we work on this type of stuff all the time. Um, it's what they did is is not wrong. It's it's just of course it's going to get you know scammed and hacked because they they really don't have a true you know there is no true identity layer there is no true like um, source of truth and people don't understand how to decode you know smart contracts in the beginning. So it's like okay, it looks like the exact same thing I want to see. So fake IDs out of Palau or you know took ninety seconds to make. Yeah, I mean this is like. One of the first questions I ask all prospective clients when they engage with us is, why do you want to do this on blockchain? Why does it make sense for you to do this on blockchain? Well, more often than not, 90, 99%, and I'm just making that statistic up, but that's what it feels like. It's, it's, it's a pretty poor use case. You're adding another layer of complexity. You're adding another layer of data risk. You're adding another layer of just in what we know from you know traditional enterprise tech stacks, you're adding another failure point, potential failure point. And so... I, I love the concept. I think identity, especially when you think about self-sovereign financial identity being catalyzed by blockchain is going to be very powerful. But putting identities fully on chain, you know, I, I don't know, but using the blockchain as sort of a centralized data highway to validate and attest identities as a way to prove, you know, KYC AML, can I prove that, you know, the counterparty on the other side of this trade is who they are, say they are? That's where I view a lot of powerful potential for blockchain in this space. You know, for example, we apply, you know, if, if I apply for the most complex mortgage loan product, in theory, I have to supply the same information of my identity for a student loan, for an auto loan, for a personal loan, et cetera, et cetera. Why do I have to submit the same information over and over and over and over again to all these different lenders, to all of these different providers, when ideally in a perfect world, I could have maybe, and I don't know what this construct is eventually going to develop. Hopefully someone creates this, but it's, hey, I have my own personal identity that is validated on on chain, right? The metadata is validated. And anytime I want to go and apply to a mortgage or a student loan or an auto loan or a personal loan, that same data payload is validated and, and uh, attested and authenticated. But now I am in control of my data. The lenders don't house that data. The the, the, the People I'm applying for the capital don't own the data. I still own the data, but now I'm providing an open access for them to validate and trust and authenticate that this data is true. And then there's third-party verifiers that can do that as well, right? I, th- I think that's where a good use case for identity is going to be. But when you start putting everything on the chain, right, it's like, why? I mean, I, I think you're going to have these people that, you know, we need people like this to kind of test everything. And, and we need the people to... To, you know, okay, we put IDs on chain and they got hacked and they got defrauded and, you know, multiple things were, were created and blah, 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 right? And that's a learning lesson because that's how we learn, okay, this is where the technology could apply and this yeah. is where it was a poor use case, right? I really yeah, appreciate we'll see, uh, how you, 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 you... Yeah, keep going. Sorry, I was just going to... This is actually something I care very, very deeply about and have done a fair bit of work in. But the... You know, I think I really appreciate that you're saying, you know, this attestation and verification, because we, I think we really need to stop thinking about it as identity and start thinking about really the functional aspects of what belongs on the tech stack in the first place. Um, I yep. think it's going to be really, really hard to get people to hold their own identity, be completely responsible for their own identity, and then sort of use it for these like functional purposes, because we've already sort of seen from like the way that we've seen our space develop that, you know, holding the keys to your own wallet is just not something that a lot of people are interested in doing. And they're actively searching for custodians. And we keep coming back to this like first article on the value of like institutional investors being custodians for people that don't want to do it themselves. And ID is even much more fundamentally important than any of the options that we currently have in our space. And so I think uh, it's really important to know like the user experience around identity is very complicated because Yes, in theory, the in an, in an ideal world, you would be able to have this sort of ID that you own, that you control, that you maintain, that you manage, and then you sort of share it with all of these different systems. But unfortunately, you, you know, we haven't reached or are even close to reaching a point where the majority of people could do that. And if you build an identity system that inherently does not include everyone 
from the get-go, then you're already creating an inequity problem that will be very difficult to resolve in the long run. On top of that, it's a very interesting question of, you know, the logistics around this identity. And if you were to be the owner, but at what point does it begin? And at what point do you, do you gain custody of it? Are you a child that is 12 that is expected to maintain your ID? Or at what point is there a turnover? And what does that mean for the data that's found within it? And, you know, what does that mean for families, for example, that might split up and then you might end up having step, step parents? Then how does key management work when they, in the case of adoption? Or so there's like all of these questions, logistical questions on what it takes for people to actively be the owners and custodians of their own identity. And the big problem here is that we see a lot of the innovation in the space coming from such a functional perspective where you are thinking about it from the lens of KYC AML, or you are thinking about it from the lens of accessing a financial product or service or an education product or service or whatever product health related product or service. Um, And unfortunately, when it comes to identity and identifiable data, like national identity data, then we're talking about like an entirely different ballgame that goes all the way back to your birth. And there's a whole 18 years um, and questionably even longer that you're absolutely not in proper form to maybe be the, the primary custodian of your own data. And so there has to be mechanisms for a country to be able to understand and mitigate and manage those risks. Um, putting my nerd hat on, uh, what I find really fantastic about this too is that in the earliest phases of a national identity system, the only things that were recorded were actually events, reoccurring events, birth, uh, you know, divorce, marriage, land ownership, etc. And now we've got this like really key data set around biographical, biometric information that is so much more sensitive. And we constantly believe that a system needs to have this data be permanently stored in order for us to have this ability to continuously verify or credentialize things. And to me, this question of the permanence of data is one of the biggest risk uh, you know, aggregators that there is, because you're essentially saying you need a system that is safe enough to be able to hold this data forever. And that alone, and that arrogance of saying we need to build a system that can hold this data forever is really like primal territory for people that want to hack these systems or that want to, you know, replicate them in, in counterintuitive ways or in bad ways to be able to leverage them because we are so obsessed with keeping this data uh, and continuously verifying that we're not thinking a little bit creatively about how to design a system that doesn't relate or doesn't require the permanence of data. And I think that that's a consideration that we really need to be thinking about as well. I I absolutely love what you just said, because when we're talking about these tech stacks, we're talking about like technologies. And and I always go back to web one because everything we're seeing, there's nothing new here. It it all rhymes with with things that we've seen before. And I was actually thinking about this related to to this on the way to work today, um, which is, you know, you have to have like various technologies in your tech stack, whether we're talking about, you know, the internet, whether you're talking about secured of IDs, you have to have all these various differences and, and, and safeguarding across the way. And what this reminds me of is like those early websites that were made 100% in Flash. Like 100% of the website was just Adobe Flash. And it was, they were slow, they were they were garbage, they were absolutely terrible, but it was this new technology that, that someone, you know, that some company got sold on. And then as soon as the web started to evolve, you had to throw the entire thing out and start over. Um, and that, and that's really what I'm seeing here is like blockchain absolutely should be integrated into almost every tech stack, uh, you know, around the planet in various, in various measures. But you don't bake an entire cake out of one ingredient. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of people is just not understanding like it, it, it's a layer. It's, it's not the whole solution. Right. Jay, if you remember, we had an interesting conversation last summer with a a pretty old church, um, in the (laughs) EU. And, um, one of the things was, um, when you, and, and Lucia, you hit on this point that I don't think a lot of people kind of really realize is like data longevity and data permanence is still a relatively novel new um, uh, concept in terms of data architecture and, and, and data history is really only the past 20, 25 years. So one of the first things, one of the first scenarios when we were talking with that church was, hey, and this was this was at the, I think it was almost two years ago and it was when NFTs were at the peak. And it's like, hey, we want to digitize all of our, you know, old works as NFTs for the idea that we could have digital longevity for these products as these physical assets deteriorate over time. And it's really interesting because we've never really, I don't think a lot of people have thought about like, how does data live permanently for hundreds of years, right? Mm-hmm. Versus books. Like we know if something goes in a book, it's going to last as long as that physical book exists, right? And now we have a church that has the only copy of this 
piece of work from 1450, if we keep changing data constructs and what it means to be data permanent and, you know, the ledgers that these things live on and who has access and who has the ability to modify that, like we haven't thought through what that means from a, for, for the generations 200 years from now, right? Like what if, what if my, my, my grandchildren want access to my data records 200 years from now? And I would love, you know, to be able to just have them full exposure into my life so they can have all this history. We haven't thought about what that longevity means just yet. How, how are we going to facilitate the success for that? And I think that's something that uh, it's still such a new topic uh, just in the, in the world of data. And it, yeah. it's, it's, it's how do we get to well, that on the, think, on the flip side? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think that's, I think it's an interesting area for us to explore. And I think that's a, a very powerful capability that blockchain can bring to the table that we haven't had before. Well, the flip side of that, though, is that how much, like, do you really want that permanence of data and in what context? For a person that lives an ordinary life, then sure, I mean, it, it would be wonderful. But then you might think about, for example, a person that was rescued from human trafficking. They're given a humanitarian sort of visa or permission to exist within, let's say, the United States. Then that person gets registered. They get issued a new ID because they would have not had this kind of paperwork or anything before. So the context of the reason they're receiving the ID is that they're a sex trafficking victim or used to be a former sex tra trafficking victim, how long does the context within which your ID was created follow you? And does that mean that for the rest of your life, your ID will be pinned to this notion that you are a rescued sex That's trafficking victim? Point. And That's so really like this idea of permanence, data permanence is a very interesting one because ID doesn't just happen, right? Like ID is issued within a context. You are born, you are, you know, reach the age to have a driver's license. You are sick and need some kind of like specific medical medical ID or medical insurance. You have certain types of vac vaccination records. You um, might be recovering from something. You, you know, and so you might have immigrated for a particular reason. And how far down the line do you want that context to continue to impact the way that you coexist in the world and the way that you are able to access services and products? for the future. And so when we think about the permanence of data, there's a legacy aspect. Absolutely. There's a long-term, you know, consistency of verifiability because you need to be able to prove ultimately, you know, who are you? Are you actually who you say you are? And how consistently have you been this person so that we can actually trust that, that identity and we can trust you as a, as a person. Right. Um, but that also begets the fact that like, there are contexts within which people are edge cases or are maybe not even edge cases because there's you know millions of people that the right, migrate the right to be forgotten. Exactly. So where does this sort of but even like, you know, the right to be forgotten and also the right for your context to be forgotten and for you to be able to eventually have a regular ID and a regular presence in the world rather than always being sort of like, you know, accompanied by all of the reasons why you obtained or the forms within which you obtained this identity in the first place. And this would be true for millions of people around the world. And so I think as we sort of look toward the design of identity systems, we aren't asking enough questions. We aren't spending enough time in this like research and, and use case and life experience and nuance uh, like playgrounds that we should be spending in. And we're going straight into the functional. And I think that that's going to be the reason why there's a disconnect between the private sector and like the functional, you know, KYC AML initiatives that are taking place and this dream of having, you know, digital legal identity for all. You know, I, I think I saw that Black Mirror episode. And, you know, it's, it's, but, 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 you know, I think that there's the early, the, there's some early phases of this and we, you know, we already know in the United States, you know, your, you're, you know, when your, your juvenile record goes away. So if, if you do something as a, as a youth, um, that, that does catch the attention of the law in a bad way, then, then they give you a reset, you know, they, that doesn't generally carry forward. Um, that there are, you know, are reasons why, you know, there's statute of limitations, there's, there's all sorts of things, but, but I think this is a fabulous conversation. We really should just do an entire episode on, on the, the theories and theses of, of what what should be permanent, what shouldn't, um, and how should people manage this? So, mm -hmm. uh, on our last story, uh, the idea of permanence not being very long, um, Reddit, who's you know one of the the I think they're a, a top ten social media site on the planet. Uh, they they went full cryptocurrency during this last bull run. They 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 introduced avatars, uh, NFTs. They don't call them NFTs; they call them digital collectibles because they're smart. Um, but they also integrated a couple ERC twenty tokens, the the moons and the bricks, um, and heavy trading. Uh, these things are moved around. They're used as currency. You get you get so many upvotes. They give you they give you your little moons and, and everything else. Um, 
people bought into this. They spent money on this. They, they, you know, they did the things that the DGNs do. They, they trade them. They, they liquid, you know, they formed liquidity pools. They, they hedged them. They, they, you know, over shorts, futures, you name it. Uh, and, and now all of a sudden with the regulatory, uh, you know, framework in the United States, they've killed it. And I think that this is really, you know, indicative of like just a, a really bad way, um, to continue to kind of push on, on, um, you know, the, the, the troubles that the market showcases. But I also really want to come back to, I think that this is an inherent issue with the ECR20 uh, protocol. I think it's just too easy. There's not enough here. And, and I've, I've said over and over, it's not that ECR20 is a failure, but, but I think that we can do better and we really need to move far, far, far past uh, this protocol because it's, 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 you know, if you look on Uniswap, like 99.8% of all ECR20 coins are failures. Um, and it's really hard for investors or people that want to play with this to understand, you know, well, okay, it must be garbage because every, you know, every time I, I buy one of these things or trade one of these things, it, it just goes to zero. Um, that, that's not a lot of, you know, market confidence. You know, Lucia, I don't know if you had any moons. You seem like somebody would be very popular on Reddit. <laughs> Thanks. I actually uh, am anonymized on my on Reddit. Um, oh, of course, no, no it's, it's <laughs> yeah, no, like like Twitter. I'm, I'm who I am on Reddit. Nobody should. Know. Yeah, Reddit, not so much. Um, but you know, I I think obviously, like I really appreciate Reddit for the way that they've shown up in, in experimenting their way through understanding some of these applications. Um, I think you know, obviously user experience is still not great. Like, sure, you can you can do all of these things on Reddit. I've played around with some of them. Um, is it super user-friendly? No, but also Reddit was primed to be a very good experimentation space for this because even before they had this, they had, you know, the ability to upvote and downvote and to send medals to people. And so they had some of these transactions already in place for you to be able to easily transfer the experience into like a crypto-friendly, um, into a crypto-friendly way. Naturally, like, they were going to run into barriers the second that you just didn't, you, there was nothing more that they could expand toward. Like it really is a community initiative, a community, like community points are pretty much, they live isolated within Reddit. And so I think, you know, we're going to keep seeing a lot of these like brands try to experiment with crypto, try to experiment with NFTs in the form of loyalty. I myself am, you know, working on a few initiatives around that. I think Obviously, like the second that it starts to look a little too close, like money, and you're operating in the US, you're going to run into the barrier of the SEC. And so, um, you know, do I have thoughts on it? I really respect the approach that they took. I respect the playfulness within which they did it. I think there are still way too many uh, barriers in looking at this as like tokenized opportunities. And I think even with NFTs, if you don't do it or design it very carefully, um, then as long as regulation is an impediment in the US, it's going to continue to be an innovation killer. And that that is quite devastating. I don't see Reddit sort of doing this from any other part of the world because I do feel it's a very American heavy uh, user base. Um, that said, I think that it's an exciting time for people thinking about tokens and thinking about uh, you know non-fungible tokens in very creative forms in relation to brand, brand equity, brand participation and engagement. So I'm still optimistic about the way that these things can happen. It's just, I think that this was a very big experiment that played too closely into the lines of what is under like regulatory gray space in a non-regulatory friendly environment. Yeah. I'm, I'm addicted to Reddit. I'm, I'm probably on Reddit maybe four hours Me too. In, in various forms. Right. Uh, and, and uh, so I, I really, and especially as someone in this bit, I really appreciate what Reddit did. Reddit, Reddit, Reddit took the plunge and was on the cusp of using blockchain crypto as a competitive edge to their brand, right? And and I think they did succeed in that fashion. They they pulled off a great program. It was, it was being used. It had wide adoption across mm -hmm. the ecosystem. So it was a success there. It's unfortunate because it's we're still it proves just how early we are in the space, right? Like you're in a point now where if you're a major brand and you are trying to dive into this space. Right now, you have to, you're forced and pigeonholed to make a selection of a chain of choice, right? Mm -hmm. And right now, the dominant ecosystem is Ethereum. So Reddit went with Ethereum. And the big reason, at least publicly, why they cited it was scaling issues, bandwidth, you know, transaction fees, and all that stuff. So now what they've done is they've proved out the use case that their community is willing to use this and the loyalty program was successful. But the core technology is still too premature to support the scalability of what their, their needs were. Right. 
and and I, I applaud Reddit for doing it. And I think Reddit at some point, knowing how in front of technology they are for their community, will revisit this at some point in some way, shape, form. What I do love about it is it really proved that um, blockchain-based loyalty programs are only going to evolve from this point forward. I think it's going to be a major customer acquisition strategy for D2C, B2C brands uh, as they start to take loyalty and engagement with their communities much more seriously, right? Especially brands that have substantial followings and want to reward direct engagement with their uh, with their customers to make them recurring sticky customers and lower their customer acquisition costs. A loyalty program, especially that's built to incentivize, you know, drop airdropping, you know, certain collectibles, airdropping tokens of that nature. I think that's great. The problem is even successful programs, if they catch the wind of the regulators, especially in an air in a, in a part of the world that there's no regulatory guidance on how you treat these crypto points or crypto tokens, and they could be considered securities because they're speculative, because redditors are acquiring these these points and these NFTs because they think it's going to be a much more value later, you know, that, that, that sucks. Right. And it, it kind of makes you wonder like, what about the Starbucks, the Starbucks Odyssey program? That's another successful loyalty program. That's right now in a big beta phase. And if no one on yeah. listening here has tried it, I, I urge them to try it, but it's, it's, but that wouldn't that be, that would be regulated simply like a loyalty program. Right. And I think that's inherently where, like brands have to be very, very cautious about how they undertake these kinds of things. And I also know like Reddit, they moved to a layer two, right? So they, they did move to Arbitrum. And, and I think this is the other point around infrastructure is that like interoperability and like choice, like protocol choice is not just a problem at the base layer protocol level. It's also a problem in all of the technical, like technological stack that goes atop and underneath it, right? Like you're still, needing to make these decisions and ultimately whatever is intended to address interoperability or scalability, such as a layer two is still also presenting the same problem. And so we're no closer to sorting this out. And then at the same time, uh, you have these brands wanting to experiment, but ultimately the regulatory uncertainty of, you know, operating experimentally rather than, you know, sort of going for something that mimics something that is already regulated in the way that Starbucks has managed to get Odyssey out there. It replaces a loyalty program and therefore a loyalty point is treated or regulated as a loyalty point in like the regular world through your Starbucks application, non-Odyssey um, is regulated. And I think that that's really where I think brands have to be very, very poignant about how they go about this strategy and what they're able to mimic depending on how far they want to scale this and also like what risk they're willing to absorb, which I think Reddit was particularly adventurous with. And I, I respect them for that a lot. Yeah, I think it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it, to be clear, mm-hmm. it's I, I've got all sorts of you know collectibles, and you know they're sitting there, and I, I've never you know kind of cashed out the moons and stuff. But I think the the point I want to make, and and I think this is the one thing that we can say all definitively, is we're still so early. Um, you know, if we really look at this, everyone's playing around with it. The technology is 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 very scattered. You know, there's all these little fiefdoms because you know you can't move things back and forth. Bridges are horrible. Uh, the wallet solution is is not even close to where it needs to be. And so I think if we really say like where is where is this going? Um, I, I think that blockchain is is, is still going to win. I think that we're going to see, you know, the 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 loss uh, the, the the losses that we're taking right now, and kind of the hits that we're taking of you know regulation this, regulation that. It, it's quite simply because it doesn't make sense to most people. Um, they're not able to to kind of really understand what's happening behind the scenes. And I think we're focusing so much on the technology. And I think that's one of the things that I really liked is they didn't call them NFTs; they call them digital collectibles. And and if you didn't care about the blockchain, then don't worry about it because we we manage the wallet and everything for you. And so I think we're going to continue to see these evolutions. Um, you know, in the same way we saw it, you know, happen quite often. Like there was a point in time when, you know, MTV said they did not want MTV.com because they didn't need it because they had an, they had the AOL keyword. Um, and, and, you know, literally it's, these are, these are stories about not everybody understands the new technology. And so sometimes they get comfortable with this versus that. Uh, it, it didn't mean MTV was wrong about having an internet presence. It just meant that they st- they were on the wrong technology and they didn't understand what scale and where everything was going to be going. So I, I think that we're, we're in for a long ride. Um, um, I'm, you know, I'll take any good news I can, which is, you know, uh, Morgan Stanley saying that <laughs> the crypto winter is over. Great. You know, please start, start dumping money into the market. Um, but Lucia, Siva, I, I thank you guys so much. It's been a fabulous episode. We really covered a lot. So many great insights. Um, Lucia, where can people uh, find you and, and learn more about everything you're working on? Honestly, I'm really big on LinkedIn. Uh, probably the platform I use the most these days. So just hunt me down, Lucia Ayardo on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll be most responsive there. Fabulous. And Siva. 
LinkedIn as well. Uh, I mean, <laughs> hopefully LinkedIn is listening to this and they're going to explore some sort of blockchain-based strategy or something. <laughs> I'll send it to them. I literally just got back from their annual summit. I gave a talk on uh, at their annual summit, so I will make sure they do. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Well, uh, I, I'm on LinkedIn as well, uh, LinkedIn slash Jay Steinbeck, uh, because that's where that's where we all are. Um, but but most importantly, uh, you know, going to be at Money 2020, going to be uh, over in London here soon. The travel is not slowing down, and I think the 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 innovation and kind of the curiosity is really speeding up. So excited to see all this stuff. Thank you guys so much. Why Wales? We'll see you guys next time. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.